When you look at the pie chart for technique failure and other studies and when they're reporting it, death is on there. Yeah. But I do agree that, yeah. you know, death doesn't really count. I think it's transition to hemodialysis. Well, well, you definitely death don't. Death doesn't count? <laughs> yeah. Don't put Come that Come on. It's only death. Why are you making such a little thing? <laughs> Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent FJC journal news. FJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Nan. Hi everyone, my name is Nan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride, and I'm glad we have experts on today because I still don't know the difference between recurrent, relapsing, and repeat peritonitis. Excellent. Sophia. Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I am a clinical nephrologist at the Denver VA, and I'm on faculty at the University of Colorado. I tweet at Sophia uh, underscore kidney, and um, I have no conflicts of interest. Swapnil. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. We are a Canadian center, so we have a large PD program with about 200 PD patients. Uh, but I am not a PD expert myself. I'm a little bit rusty now. I do mostly hemodialysis and hypertension. I tweet at H. Swapnil. I myself uh, don't do a lot of PD. I'm starting to build my uh, PD population up. It's been growing at a, at a nice rate. But we did bring in some peritoneal dialysis experts to be talking tonight. We have a Jade Tickle. Jade. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jade Teagle. I'm a nephrologist and assistant professor at University of Texas McGovern Medical School in Houston, and I tweet at JM Teagle. Very good. What's your experience with uh, peritoneal dialysis? So right now I'm overseeing the peritoneal dialysis program for our safety net hospital system in Harris County. We went from not being able to accept PD patients into our hospital and having to send them away to now having a growing peritoneal dialysis program. We have 30 patients right now. We're admitting four more next week and it's been a great experience. Well, that sounds awesome. How long is that process good to go from thir- from zero to 30 beds? So I started faculty in 2017. And we had our first patient in October of 2017. And so we struggled for a while because of nursing. We didn't have enough nurses or nurses, we couldn't keep them. So most of our growth has really happened in the last two years when we've brought on, we now have three PD nurses and we're trying to expand our program quickly. And how many more people do you think you can have with three nurses or are you getting close to the limit with three nurses? I'm just not familiar with these ratios. The ratio used to be one to 20 for the nursing. Um, They increased it to one to 25 because of the pandemic. I don't know if it's going to stay that way. I still think 20 is a lot for one nurse, but we'll see how it goes. Our nurses are great. Okay. And the other expert we brought on is uh, Jeff Pearl. Jeff, introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. Uh, First of all, it's like an absolute honor to be among this Neff Twitter royalty court here tonight. (laughs) Um, but you uh, are you are in for a surprise. <laughs> um, you clearly didn't see how the first thirty minutes of this uh, discussion went already. 
No. <laughs> um, so I'm a nephrologist at St. Michael's Hospital and University of Toronto. I'm editor-in-chief of PDI and also one of the co-investigators, uh, PI, on um, the Optimizing the Prevention of Peritoneal Dialysis-Associated Peritonitis in the U.S. Study. We call that OPUS. I tweet at, uh, at uh, PD underscore Pearls, uh, Pearls spelt like my last name. And uh, I come from Toronto, which is really a mecca of PD and, and did my fellowship under the leadership of the late Demetrius Oriopoulos and Joanne Oh, Burton. wow. So, um, yeah, I think PD was a big part of my fellowship from the get-go. Tell us about this OPUS study. What, what is this? Yeah, so OPUS is a, an AHRQ-funded study, and uh, it's u- leveraging some administrative data using Medicare claims and as well as some data from the peritoneal dialysis outcomes and practice pattern study to look at uh, risk factors and predictors of peritonitis. And really, the, the whole premise is um, also we have some pilot sites that are collecting information on peritonitis across the U.S. So we have 60 pilot sites that have been collecting uh, their uh, peritonitis episodes, and it just boggles my mind in the US that we report KT over V at PD clinics, which, you know, we could have a whole podcast on the impact of that on clinical outcomes. But you'd have to find new people because we don't have any KT over V believers in this crew. I know that for a fact. Good. So, but the issue is we don't report peritonitis. And isn't that such a much more important metric to track and understand across programs? But OPUS is a registry retrospective cohort. Is that, is that, is that what I get? I'm it's getting sort of a few, it's a few things using registry data, using our data in the peritoneal dialysis outcomes and practice pattern study. And prospectively, we've done a pilot project collecting information on peritonitis from 60 clinics, just saying, can we do this? Can we report? peritonitis using the same definitions and in a standardized way. Okay. We are talking this week about the uh, International Society of Peritoneal Dialysis update on peritonitis guidelines. And Jeff, you were involved in, in writing this. Your, your name's on the masthead. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I'm one of the co-authors, but I, I must say the lion's share of the work was done from two groups, groups from Hong Kong and led by Philip Lee and groups from Australia led by David Johnson, who sort of brought a lot of the information together. So the last time we had an update was 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it looks like it's like every five or six years they have a new update. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, sometimes this new there's new information. Sometimes there's new interpretation of old information. <laughs> how would you describe how would you describe what was what was driving this update? Is there, is there a way to characterize that? I think we had more uh, contemporary information on risk factors for peritonitis, more contemporary peritonitis rates. I think we've had five years to digest and try and standardize definitions and, and take a look at peritonitis, perhaps from a different lens. I, I wish that there was more new evidence-based uh, recommendations, you know, in terms of prevention that we could have developed born out of randomized control trials. But we move slowly in nephrology with RCTs, and we move even slower in PD. So I definitely I'm going to disclaimer and say the grade 1A recommendations are thin in these guidelines, but we need to boost them up. And was there any big missteps in 2016 that you were just burning to get that fixed. Like, oh, did we make a big mistake in 2016? We really needed to reverse course on that. No, I don't think so. I think that it just really was more of an update. And a lot of the same information is from 2016. Nothing really burnt my, uh, nothing really, you know, irritated me or anything like that. Uh, Jade, any opening statements on uh, on these guidelines? My experience with these guidelines, like I said, when the last rendition was out in 2016. I was a fellow at the time in a program who did 
not have a lot of PD patients. So when I looked at these guidelines, it was because I was getting that 2 a.m. call, patients coming into the EC, cloudy affluent, abdominal pain, what do I do? And that's kind of where I, I used the 2016 guidelines was more as a like a treatment resource. Like how do I manage this? And now as I'm, you know, supervising this program, I like Jeff mentioned, I'm really interested in the prevention side of it. Like how can we not have peritonitis? Hey Jeff, for somebody who is not smart enough or important enough to be invited to author guidelines or be involved in guidelines, can you tell me how does the process work? I, I imagine a bunch of people sitting around a table with whiskey arguing at each other, shouting at each other, disagreements. How does it actually work? Yeah, a little bit, but mostly in the form of emails. And at the end of the day, this isn't an election to a guidelines committee. Of course, these are key opinion leaders who have a published track record, publishing some of the more pivotal papers in PD who come together and have played strong roles at ISPD and have their you know their leadership and expertise contributing. But I was pleased to see that uh, they did shake things up a bit. Uh, I'm a new author, and I was really pleased that they invited some other people to sort of uh, provide their input. And I think that that's really important as guidelines evolve. If the same people keep updating and leading them over and over again, it can get a little bit stale. And so it's nice to have more people join in. And I thought they did things very collaboratively in terms of getting feedback, multiple meetings, um, going through things. Did they spend much time thinking about how they're going to publicize these guidelines? How are they going to push this information out? If a guideline gets published and nobody reads it, it's like a, it's like a tree falling in the woods or one hand clapping. You're absolutely right. Like knowledge translation and implementation science is like a big aspect of it. And I still have to say to this day, we could do a better job of implementing the guidelines. The problem is, Jade, at 2 a.m., when someone's in the eMERGE with peritonitis and we're deciding on what treatment to give them, they have not read the ISPD guidelines, I'm sure. <laughs> um, you know, some of the some of the frontline people. And a big yes, gap Yes, in the emergency is, room. Right. So a sure. big gap is like, you know, the scariest place sometimes for a PD patient to present with peritonitis is in the emergency department or in the hospital. Some hospitals don't even do PD. Some hospitals tell patients to do their own PD. Some hospitals are, are the culprit for some of the peritonitis episodes. <laughs> Any sort of a bee in my bonnet about uh, peritonitis care. It's I think the clinics have really good protocols. Do do CMEs. Do listen um, to the guidelines and follow ISPD protocols. But it's everywhere else after hours where a patient might present, where I think care might be lapsed. And and I think that's something that's a real struggle. How do we how do we make it so that a PD patient can present anywhere, anytime with peritonitis and get the same treatment and not have any deviations from best practices? Hear me out. ISPD peritonitis guidelines, the comic book. Right. <laughs> I just, you know, make them approachable. Graphic novels, they're very yeah. hot. No, totally. Even to us, like we've sent our eMERGE docs, like a whole thing, like a one pager on PD. Like here's what you do when a PD patient comes. And I'm happy to share that if people are interested. But I think it's really important. Like, you know, if you know where your patients go to develop some relationships with some acute care settings and make sure that they get some of the information. And that helped... Uh, I'll just tell you right out there, we once had a patient have a paracentesis to diagnose peritonitis. And it's like, did you know that there was oh. a PD catheter there? So it's like, there's a lot of sort of things that in the emergent setting need to be clarified. So it's all about communication. I think assessors nephrologists have a responsibility to relay that to some people 
who may not be as familiar with PD? Well, we're very strict about telling people not to access the PD catheter. So maybe they yeah. just took that very literally. Yeah, I, I hope not. <laughs> well, I think part of the problem is, so I get to admit my hospital doesn't do peritoneal dialysis at all. It's not like we're a community hospital where you have a nephrologist group that comes and circulates and goes to different hospitals that are on call. We don't have the staff or resources to do PD, meaning the physicians or the nurses, we just can't do it. And so if somebody comes to the ER, they don't know how to put anything into the abdomen and then take yeah. anything out to sample it. So yeah. that's therein lies the problem. Yeah. And so we oftentimes they'll be like, well, why don't we just tap them? And right. I mean, this is actually not an uncommon call to the nephrologist team from from like the the medicine admission team, like the actual residents, because they don't know any better. Yeah. And actually, they will get admitted overnight without calling us, and yeah. we're like, we cannot care for a peritoneal dialysis patient. And mm. they're you know pouring IV antibiotics into them, and they're sort of doing all of these things without getting cultures. So I trained under Isaac Teitelbaum and I did one of, one of the co one of the co-authors of these guys. One yes, of the co-authors, right. yeah. Right. Yeah. Actually to Jeff's point, KT over V, like he's been preaching that since I was a fellow from 2016 to 2018, which actually seemed like new stuff, but it sounds like you guys have been poo-pooing it for a long time. Yeah. That is something that I was raised under and now I'm at a place where I'm I would like to start it and maybe that's our five, ten year plan, literally. And so this is like a reality. I'm going to get in trouble probably for saying this, but we're at a state-of-the-art facility and we don't provide PD. And it's it's not because we don't want to, but it's because we can't get the staffing. We don't have the nursing nor the physicians. Yeah. It's a problem. No, and I think that's a very common problem. And to be honest, it's like a lot of clinics tell their patients, if you have peritonitis, call us first before you go to the emergency setting, just because they're going to land in a hospital Sorry, no, not offending you, but none taken. Like your hospital, where people are going to futz around for hours and hours. We won't get a culture. We won't get a sample of the fluid. We'll never know what grew, and we'll get X number of antibiotics thrown at them. And there's a really great study. One of my one of my favorite studies in peritonitis is the PROMP study from Australia. For every, um, I think for every hour in delay in treatment, this study found that there was a five and a half percent increased risk of technique failure. From, or treatment failure from the peritonitis. They looked at every they, hour. Yeah, ev I think it was every hour. But again, five percent per hour. Yeah. Well. Oh my God. I, don't quote me on that one. Again. And it was, and the, and the endpoint was technique failure. The patient having to be forced into HD. No, sorry, treatment failure. And treatment failure includes failure of antibiotic therapy to resolve the peritonitis. Or having to switch to hemo, having the catheter probe. Jeff, help me out. What does that mean? The antibiotics failed to treat the peritonitis. Does that mean the patient then died? What, I mean, okay, what? so so Nyan, back to your R's. Uh, one of the R's of peritonitis is refractory, which is failure of the effluent to clear. Um, uh, Good. I still don't know what that means in general. So thank you. <laughs> so failure of the, the effluent to clear after five days of antibiotics. So we typically treat with antibiotics, and if at day five the cell count's still high or the PD fluid culture still growing above. We consider that a treatment failure, and um, okay. the catheter has to be pulled. Okay. A another treatment failure might be if someone develops a relapse, like we finish treatment, and all of a sudden they grow the bug over again um, within a month. So that's a relapse. So I think they lump together a number of these failure of antibiotic therapy alone to completely resolve the peritonitis episode when they, okay. they looked at failure to treat peritonitis. That study found that treatment delays did impact outcomes. And in a follow-up study, the number one thing that contributed to treatment delays was actually getting CT scans in the emergency department as opposed oh. to giving antibiotics. So a lot of unnecessary testing. And if it looks like a duck and it smells like a duck, treat it like peritonitis. And so 
a lot of people got over-investigated. So to your point, uh, Sophie, I think a lot of times when people come to emergency departments with PD, they, they think they must give IP antibiotics for peritonitis. But the truth is getting antibiotics in, in whatever form quicker is probably better than delaying treatment to get them to pay to a center where they can get IP antibiotics. So I tell anybody, like, give the antibiotics right away and have patients bring a sample to the eMERGE just to have it so that we can send it for uh, cell count and culture if the eMERGE can't do that on their own. Okay, so the way we decided that we're going to go through uh, these guidelines, we're going to bring back a, a, a freely filtered favorite, which is the guideline draft. And, uh, and this is pretty remarkable because tonight is the NFL draft. And I know there's going to be a lot of fans that are going to be torn between watching the NFL draft and then tuning into Freely Filtered and watching our draft. And I, I apologize to the NFL to pull away so many of their fans. But, you know, this was the day that we had. So we're sorry. And uh, I think the NFL will survive this, but it, it, we didn't do it intentionally. We, uh, we put names into a hat and we drew random, entirely randomly and uh, Jade pulled the first draft choice. So Jade, what is the uh, number one draft choice from our uh, list of, of guidelines? As I said before, my eye to this is towards prevention. So my draft choice is under the training program section, the one that says we recommend PD exchange technique and knowledge be regularly assessed and updated with an emphasis on direct inspection and practice of PD technique. And I chose that because I think the training is very important in these patients. And I really liked the study that they uh, cited in the paper was that, well, two studies, one that showed that at six months, about 50% of patients are using shortcuts. You know, they're maybe not washing their hands as well or as long, or they're skipping out on, you know, hygiene things. And I think that's something that, you know, we are all guilty of that. We want to get stuff done quickly. We want to move on. And then there was another study that looked at, is there a difference between looking at ongoing inspection of training versus telling the patient, hey, are you doing this properly versus actually watching them do it and you know, having the nurse make comments on, oh, you're, you know, you missed this or you missed that. So that's my pick. And have we completed the cycle? Do we know that if we improve the training, we reduce rates of peritonitis? Like, the, Or do we know that when we people are taking the shortcuts, it results in more peritonitis? Like, is that, is that so data that's what the solid? Stu- that's what the study they cited shows that when they had the direct inspection, Um, that there was less episodes of peritonitis in that group and the ones that had the routine emphasis on direct inspection. So the nurse actually watches them and reassesses the training versus um, like an oral reminder or checklist or something like that. I feel like this is something that should be more emphasized and maybe because it's 1C, because it's always difficult to really evaluate or assess an educational program, right? That's one of the most challenging things to do. Technique failure is probably one of the most important things that we should be trying to prevent from peritoneal dialysis perspective. And peritonitis is one of the top causes, at least with, I think within the first year, at least. And you guys can correct me if if I'm wrong, but it it is a a large contributor to technique failure. Yeah. And here she's talking about technique failure versus treatment failure that we were referring to before. And so help me out with the definition. When we say technique failure, we mean they're done with PD. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Is that modality failure? What do we help me out with the definition? So technique failure, which I'm I'm trying to abolish that term because I think failure is such a a bad description of it because people transition off PD for so many other reasons that may not 
necessarily imply a failure. But I think what technique failure typically means is a transition to hemodialysis because of infection or because of uh, a clearance issue or a volume issue or burnout or patient preference, um, all sorts of different reasons. Mm -hmm. So that's technique failure. But treatment failure is the peritonitis episode couldn't be resolved with any other means but taking the catheter and transitioning them to hemodialysis. And if you look across the globe, we've done an international study across several countries. The number one and most common cause of why patients leave PD therapy is because of peritonitis. So it's the leading Hmm. cause. That's the leading cause. It is the leading cause. You know, anywhere from 30 to 50% of all causes for why patients transfer early. So it's a big deal. Make sure I understand that's on this list. Is death on that list or do you censor those patients? So uh, in this, and I, as editor-in-chief of PDI, I'm putting a plug in for the next upcoming issue of PDI. There is a whole systematic analysis of how we define and how we should report technique failure across studies and how it has been reported. I have a strong preference to me that it is a hemodialysis transfer event alone and death be considered separately. And I think that's really the premise of the argument in that paper. So it's really discussed in really great detail by my colleague, Mark Mark Lambie from uh, Stoke-on-Trent, who uh, led that group to develop a standardized definition. But Joel, to your point, I think it's hemodialysis transfer, not including that. May, I mean, I think that makes sense. I think that's, I don't think you want to include, because transplant, they're off of PD, but that's a, just a win, right? Yeah. Right. We shouldn't call that technique failure. I, I would defer to Jade. She's more of a PD person than me. But I do feel like when you look at the pie chart for technique failure and other studies, and when they're reporting it, death is on there. But I do agree that you know, death doesn't really count. I think it's transition to hemodialysis. No, but Sophie, to your point, I think when you're when you're interpreting risk factors for technique failure, you need to look to see if those are similarly risk factors for death or sure. are things, you know, are things going in the right direction. We don't want to keep people on PD long and increase their risk of death, right? right? Similarly, we want interventions that reduce both. You know, high quality interventions will reduce both of those events. Yeah, sort of like the transplant literature where right. death with the fun- functioning graft is different than yeah, graft the graft. Drafting don't function if you're dead. Right. <laughs> okay. Excellent draft choice. Jeff, you have the second pick of the 2002 ISPD peritonitis guideline draft. Okay. I'm pretty boring. I went with the very first recommendation. Uh, I just thought we spent a lot of time talking about the definition. And it says two out of three of uh, abdominal pain or cloudy effluent. Uh, dialysis cell count of 100 uh, with 50% neutrophils with a dwell time of at least two hours or a positive culture. And let me tell you that I can't remember the last time that somebody walked into my unit or a hospital and said, I'm going to be a Klebsiella peritonitis. I'm going to be a coagulase negative staph peritonitis. So, you know, the culture part of the diagnosis is nice if we're doing research or if we're going back to adjudicate an episode. But as a clinician, when I'm like sort of seeing a patient and deciding, do I treat or do I not treat? That cell count is really critical, and it's a really important part. I would say, like, I, you know, and one of the things I sort of emphasized when we were writing this is I pushed back and I said the cell count should really be a big part of this diagnosis. And if you think about cloudy fluid as the first part, cloudy fluid is cloudy because the cell count is high. And so it's sort of like, to me, a cop-out, like if you couldn't get a cell count or if you were in a low-resource area where you couldn't actually measure it, you had an alternate way of sort of getting a diagnosis of peritonitis based on clinical. But the cell count is really key. 
Now, if somebody walks in and has abdominal pain, the fluid looks horrible, and I don't know how long the fluid has dwelled, and you know it's really clear cut, I'm not going to sit there and re-put a sample in and dwell it for two hours to be sure. We're going to treat right away because we know that treatment's going to make a difference. Similarly, if someone's in the eMERGE and you know sometimes a PD patient sneezes and they do a cell count and they do a culture, and you're trying to figure out like what's the appropriate time to dwell... Any PD, PD patient, if you leave fluid in long enough, will have a cell count of over 100 and quite high. But the key there is that it's monocyte predominant. So what's really important is to look at the percent neutrophils when you're interpreting it. A cell count of 700 with like 10% neutrophils is much less likely for peritonitis than a cell count of, let's say, 100 with 80% neutrophils. So that's why the ISPD really had that dual combination in terms of the diagnosis. And the other thing is if, if the cell count is too short, you may not mount a, a, enough time to mount that cell count uh, to be high. So be careful about the dwell time in terms of the interpretation of the total white cell count. That's where the percent neutrophils come in really handy. And of course, if you're following patients every day, a two-hour cell count dwell time is ideal. Hey, Jeff, will you remind me the volume that you guys put in the, in the belly? Whatever the patient's dwell volume is, is just fine. Whatever their dwell volume is. Uh, there's no real uh, rhyme or reason to it. And is there anything special about sending the cultures? And the reason I ask is with SPP in cirrhotics, the recommendation is to inoculate blood culture bottles at the bedside. Yeah. What do you do here? To Sophie's point, that might depend on your expertise of the center and how much you want nurses and people at the bedside to do versus not do. We send the whole bag and our lab takes care of inoculating them into the blood culture bottles, particularly the back tech bottles and doing the proper centrifugation before uh, inoculating them. And there's a whole section in the guidelines on proper handling of effluent. So it can vary, but depending on what each center does, sometimes they inoculate the blood cultures directly. Let's say if there's going to be a huge lag to get to the lab or some other issue between sampling time and lab presentation time of the sample, you may want to do things different. So it's all about what your setup is and what works best with the expertise and the way that patients present. But there is a sort of standard procedure for how to collect and analyze it. And that is one of the guidelines, the blood culture. It bonds. is one. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually glad it's there because I needed it for my program. Jade, elaborate on that. What do you mean you needed it for your program? Well, I mean, you know, I got a lot of pushback from our program in asking them to inoculate blood culture bottles with PD fluid. They didn't want to do it. They didn't think it was the right way to do it. And so they wanted us to put the PD fluid in a sterile, like, you know, like a urine specimen cup. I suppose that worked, but eventually we convinced them to do it this way in the blood culture bottles. And I'm glad to see it now as a guideline because I can say, look, now we're doing it according to the guidelines. So. So when I read these guidelines, that felt very conventional. I felt like this is the definition that I was taught when I was a fellow. Is this, is there any variation to this definition that's new for 2022? No, I think it's the same definition as before. Um, I think it's all about sort of the interpretation and the understanding. I have a sort of an emphasis on the cell count. And I I don't think anybody should in the US or Canada, where we have the resources to do so, have it diagnosed without getting a cell count first. And the other thing is, is sometimes people don't have that cell count for 24 to 48 hours after because they send it to a lab and there's a lag. We're lucky that my our lab will process it right away. Yeah, I think it's an important part of the definition. And if I had to say in our opus study, when we've uh, we've uh, looked at sites that have diagnosed peritonitis, I've seen more culture negative peritonitis be diagnosed based on cell counts that didn't quite meet the criteria, raising the possibility that maybe they weren't even peritonitis episodes at all. That cell count's really important. 
So what you're saying is these patients had some kind of signs and symptoms of peritonitis, their culture was negative, and their cell count was didn't either have 50% or 100 cells. Right. Or both. Right. So they didn't really, they literally did not meet the definition of peritonitis. No. And I think this, the high cell count, and then looking at it in retrospect, being mostly monocytes, probably was just a dry abdomen or a long dwell, uh, as opposed to really being bona fide peritonitis. Interesting. Yeah. On, on the topic of cell count, if I could ask, uh, and I... I apologize if it's there in the guideline and I missed it. Or do you follow uh, the cell count to look at response? Yeah. Uh, sometimes you're the sick people who are well, admitted. That, that, uh, that's a guideline swap. You, you, you don't don't drip over onto someone else's pick. In fact, yeah. I, I will let you. That's not, <laughs> that, that may have now been another pick. pick. That may have been it another, may be another pick. pick. Be careful there. Stay in your lane, brother. Okay. Right. And in so, fact, swap, it's your pick. You are on the clock. Okay. I'll, I'll pick something else then. Uh, and again, this is um, my picks are ungraded, uh, so which is kind of paradoxical. But that's, I think that's uh, not so hard in these guidelines. <laughs> You're a true nephrologist. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, jokes apart, just like the KDGO guidelines that we have talked about, I think we shouldn't pay so much attention to the grades, which is again, you know, uh, uh, people are going to hold that against me the next time I point out the lack of money guidelines. But the purpose of these guidelines, just like the KDGO guidelines, is to have, a, like Jade said, and, and like a helpful resource, right? Uh, the KDGO GN guidelines, for example, uh, the last one even, when there were very few trials, they are very like a nice review of true guidance and not like we we tell you this is what you should do. They are like, you know, I don't know what to do. And, and this is how uh, we are advising you should do on the basis of, you know, experts or what have you. Anyway, uh, so that spiel aside uh, and partly, of course, you know, the recommendations. Uh, so I'm, I'm choosing three, which is on the which is kind of curious. I didn't have any idea this was coming. Uh, but the timing of peritonitis and the classification sort of of peritonitis. So there is one about the pre-PD peritonitis. I had, yes. And the other one, uh, so it's like pre-PD peritonitis. So any peritonitis happening before PD is initiated. And, you know, the peritonitis that happens after PD is initiated. I, I hope I'm not choosing more than one guideline. But the next one is also very similar. It's the PD catheter related peritonitis. So it's something that happens within 30 days of PD catheter uh, insertion. And I'm, I guess my, my question to Jeff here is, I think sometimes these may be overlapping, right? If, if a patient starts PD within 30 days of having the catheter implanted, it could be a PD catheter-related peritonitis, which is a post-peritonitis, post-PD peritonitis. Yeah. Or it could be pre-PD if it is, uh, yeah. you know, PD has not yet started. Yeah. And, and again, Swap, I think it's a good point. I really like what you said about it being guidance, but not this is how you have to do it. What I think is most important about that recommendation is that for so many years, the clock started when the patient went home. And all of a sudden, we started capturing peritonitis episodes when the patient went home. And there was a whole period that we missed out on capturing events from catheter insertion all the way to when the patient finally went home. And, you know, unfortunately, in the U.S., there's a little bit of fragmentation in care from when the PD catheter goes in to who follows the post-catheter care and manages the exit site to when the patient finally comes to the clinic for training. And that period is a period of vulnerability. And if, you know, if a, if a surgeon puts an anchoring suture at the exit site or doesn't give prophylactic antibiotics or the catheter exit site isn't cared for or there's something awry in the training, that could all contribute to an increased infection risk. But it would have nothing to do with how well the patient was washing their hands or their technique or anything else to do with all the classic things we talk about to prevent peritonitis. So it's just like a sort of part of the guideline that I think is important to say, hey, Let's not just forget about this early period because the risk factors and the preventative strategies are going to be completely different than 
peritonitis that develops at three months or at six months with an established catheter and exit site. But there are some, you know, there are some issues like swap, like your unit and my unit. We do a lot of embedded PD catheters. We leave the catheter, we, we, the surgeon will actually put the catheter in, leave it under the skin, and actually we exteriorize them at the time of insertion. So where does that fit in? When's pre-PD paradigm? Like, can you rewind and help me out? What, what's the logic behind this process? Yeah. Why do you do this? So if I could give you the simpler version and Jeff can correct me. So for example, you may... Swap knows I'm an idiot. He's like, let me talk to him like he's five. Okay. Thank you, Swap. I appreciate that. that I, I count on you for this stuff. Swap, I appreciate uh, so, it too. Yeah. I mean, you have a patient in the pre-dialysis clinic, whatever you call it, and, and you don't know when they're actually going to need dialysis, right? Now you don't want to throw in a PD catheter at the last minute because it may be hard to, you know, they, they something happens, they need to start And guess tomorrow. what? The creatinine always improves the minute you establish an access. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so so you don't, you, you I mean, you need someone needs dialysis tomorrow, you don't have an access, you will put a catheter in. So rather than do that, uh, what we do is we get a PD catheter in, but if you have the end outside, uh, then, you know, you have to flush it and you have to keep it, you know, clean and all that. If you keep the end buried inside, embedded or buried, so there's nothing outside, you don't have to do anything. So the PD catheter is there, but it's totally underneath the skin. And and just when the patient is ready, you, you know, you make a nick and you take that end out. Uh, I mean, I've done that. It's a very simple thing. Uh, and you start PD and yeah. the catheter, it heals very nicely. Uh, some patients have had, yeah. I've had patients who have had buried catheters for, you know, years. Because Years. our judgment of it's not ideal, uh, but because our judgment you put a minute you know, like a GFR of sixty, right? To me, <laughs> to me, to me, that just that honestly, that just speaks to how poor we are as nephrologists of predicting the timing of when someone's going to need dialysis. Like, I've had the same same thing in my patients, and I've started to use the KFRE equation, mm-hmm. and we only embed catheters when the KFRE is above eighty percent because we found that that was a sweet spot of needing dialysis. That's when six you months. do the embedding at eighty percent two year risk. Yeah. And in your program, who unburies it? Because we do the same thing. So you guys do. Because we have the surgeons do it, Yeah, which you know creates my more surgeon, logistical issues. Exactly. And my surgeon said, I'm not going to do this. And I said, okay, but what if I exteriorize? And he was like, okay, fine. So that was the deal. Yeah. <laughs> and you just and make it with like embedded a- catheters. With yeah. a s- you do, Jade, you guys do not. No, we don't. I, I, I like the idea of it, and I know a lot of programs do it, but we don't yet do that. But I think another thing that it helps with and Swap didn't mention is that catheter leaks. So in that early period, if you need to start PD quickly. Yeah. you had plenty of time for it to heal. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the tract heals, yeah. the tunnel heals, the, the midline insertion point heals. Yeah. It's a good point, Jade. Oh, just are there ever complications or scarring or anything that makes it difficult to externalize it? That's it's so superficial. Yeah. It's like pretty easy. It's right there. If you feel nice. the patient's, it's right there. What I was going to say is the initial idea was by Moncrief and Popovich because they thought that if the PD catheter healed subcutaneously, it would actually have less of a chance of getting a biofilm. But the risk of infection is the same whether it's an embedded or not. So the whole benefit is to is the swap said for pre-dialysis planning. And guess what? During the pandemic, I think we saved a lot of people from crash start hemo who had embedded catheters where we could just, you know, who weren't really necessarily coming as frequently for uh, visits that we could just exteriorize and start PD from the get-go. What about a really lean person? It seems like that might be a more challenging population to really embed a catheter. Oh, it makes no. it super easy to exteriorize. You can like see it from Certainly, across the Certainly, but you could find it. Yeah. If the catheters have been in for a long time, the only problem we have had is sometimes they don't work because, you know, they've been in for years and they have wandered around somewhere. So you have to, you know, 
make sure they're in the pelvis. Yeah, um, year seems a little early to have a PD catheter in, but... Yeah. Yeah, we didn't have KFRE a long time ago. Now that we have KFRE, like Jeff, yeah, it, it's becoming less of an issue to have them for years. Okay. And I derailed the conversation just trying to figure out what this buried catheter, but you had a point of talking about the buried catheter. Oh, yeah. So it's like, so there's all nuances in this definition. Does the pre-PD period begin when you first surgically place it embedded or when you exteriorize it and all sorts of there's all nuances in the definition that are going to make it different, but I wouldn't bog myself on the details. I would just say from the catheters inserted to before the patient goes home, do you track infections? No, you should track infections. Why? Because it may be a whole host of, you know, peri-insertion and surgical risk factors that need to be looked at if your rate is very high. And that hadn't been collected and that hadn't been mentioned in previous iterations of the guidelines. And that was a criticism by a few people in prior um, iterations. And that's why it's ungraded, right? Because we don't measure it. So we don't even know how much it exists. What should we do about it? Right. And so on. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, we let's have to start, start measuring. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have to start somewhere. Swap, that was like drafting the kicker in the first round. I'm very disappointed. Okay. <laughs> Nyan, you're up. <laughs> you're on the clock. There's a lot left on the board. A lot of meat uh, left on the bones. Swap really left left it wide open for you. You know, you always take the best talent available in a draft. So I'm going to go with the target for rates of peritonitis. Like that. I which that on my their list. target is less than 0.4 episodes per patient per year. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't do a lot of PD. So again, we see the patients in the hospital who have... And I didn't realize the rates were this low. And so I went and I asked our director of PD and he said... I mean, our rates, which I think are similar in many places, are less than half of this. Yeah, they said the U.S. rate was like 0.2, right? Yeah, I work with cardiologists a lot because I take care of most of the heart failure patients. And to look at the fear in their eyes when we talk about PD for a patient with an LVAD, for example, is priceless because they're so afraid of infection risk. And then you can, you know, having a number to quote that says the infection rate is incredibly low. The vast majority of these patients are treated at home, not the hospital anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I am curious to and hear back, from- And bacteremia is incredibly unusual complication of peritonitis if, too, right? Yeah. So if, if you've got bacteremia with a peritonitis, it's not from the peritonitis. And the peritonitis is a secondary source. It's either an endocarditis with secondary peritoneal seeding, or I've seen it in the context of a cholangitis. Peritonitis does not lead to bacteremia. So the LVAD cardiologist asks them how worried they are about a central line in bacteremia and infecting the LVAD versus peritoneal Mm -hmm. dialysis, where the infection is going to be localized. So it's not just about rates. It's also about morbidity in the context of the patient population. And I think the morbidity is a lot lower with PD and an LVAD with an infection than a central line. Compared to a catheter. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm curious, why are rates... This is lower than what I remember from as a fellow. And is that because of, I don't know, gentamicin cream, the whole flush and fill system, more people on the cycler, so there's less touch contamination? What's what? How, why is this happening? I think it's yes to a lot of those things. A bunch of little interventions over time that have reduced the rates. And these guidelines, people paying attention to it, looking at trends, thinking, how can we yeah. prevent this? How can we reduce this? So yeah. I, I really appreciate what you said, because I think that's something that patients care about, too. And when you're counseling patients, they say, oh, well, I don't want to do peritoneal dialysis. I don't want to get an infection. And so being able to talk about how low the rates are now is very helpful for getting patients or for educating patients on what their options are as well. Yeah, and the guideline pointed out that since 1990, the the rate has fallen in half. We've cut the rate in half. That's impressive. Yeah, and, and I think you made a good point that, you know, the ISPD recommends less than 0.4, 
but um, it's an ISPD guideline. So they have to take into account what global rates of peritonitis are. But I think we should have that for the U.S. because that's certainly achievable in the vast majority of programs. But, you know, I just want to reconcile something that's really interesting. So we're all talking about how peritonitis rates are improving and we're doing and patting ourselves on the back. We're doing all this wonderful stuff. And then it's like we started this by saying peritonitis is the leading cause of transfer to hemodialysis. So what up with that? How come we're not improving that? And, you know, all the stuff we've done, like all the preventative stuff, you know, hand washing, the connectology, the exit site cream, training, that's all reducing touch contamination events, right? Like introducing bugs like coagulase negative staph. And guess what? Those are the easiest to treat peritonitis episodes. They're the most likely to respond to therapy. What we have very little preventative strategies for are gram negative bugs, the ones that cut for, come from gut transudation. Uh, Pseudomonas is a really tough one. So we may be seeing a shift in the microbiology so that the rates are lower, but it may have been preferentially reducing rates of more of the skin organisms, leaving the tough ones behind to still cause sort of a higher rate of treatment failure. One of the things I liked about this guideline is it puts you on notice. Here's your number. It, 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 it takes, it's kind of a bold move in a guideline to say, hey, you better be less than 0.4. You're going to be kind of, no, really, right? Like that's, you know, I, I thought that was, I like that. I yeah. like that. There's a couple of guidelines that are like that. Like for the hemo people, are there, is there like a, is there an analogous central line infection guideline that says, here's what your hemo unit should be? Has anybody been so bold in the hemo world? Well, there is fistula first. It did have very specific targets in terms of how many people to get to fistulas and how many, how few people to have on catheters. So there have been some guidelines like that. But but to say a specific number of episodes per patient per year, I don't no, think I've seen Not that, I'm, I've not seen that. I'm aware of. Maybe there needs to be. Yeah, on that on that group of guidelines uh, that Nayan is talking about, there are something like a couple of them are curious. It's like we recommend the proportion of culture negative peritonitis should be less than fifteen percent. How would you how how are you thinking of operationalizing this? Is the proportion of culture negative sort of what you are saying that you know people are not doing a good job of diagnosing whether it was truly peritonitis or not? Uh, how can I reduce culture negative peritonitis? Well, they have they they actually the guideline goes into some very specific things that you can do. They talk about centrifuging the fluid and culture in the pellet areas to change to increase the yield I, that was another one of my potential draft choices that swap has stopped stomped over um, <laughs> <laughs> but again I, I like that because that was another way of checking like everybody always thinks that their program is above average but here's a benchmark to actually measure yourself and if you're and honestly i when i treat peritonitis i feel like i get culture negative all the time i would mean it, it's frustrating you're one of those bad programs <laughs> i am one of those bad programs yeah yeah well it's, you know cash lack's kind of a, a sketchy hospital to begin with <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i think it's important i mean i think the the whole premise for that culture negative target is is your lab doing the right thing and are you handling the fluid in the right way do you have a quality Quality control if issue with the way effluents handle. But don't forget, culture negative can happen because of antecedent antibiotic exposure. So, you know, if people get antibiotics and you don't get a sample. But I think what they're getting at really is, is did the lab process the fluid properly? And we just published a paper with my Thai colleagues in KI reports where the Thai group has, has ridiculous, had ridiculously high culture negative rates. And they actually did yeah. a sample where they actually took one sample to a central lab for analysis with ISPD guideline endorsed sampling methods, and one they left to sort of the local labs and found a huge discrepancy in what they grew 
locally versus centrally. So a lot of the dialysis clinics in the US now have a central lab where you can send specimens to that are following ISPD guidelines. So I think there's a perception out there that local will get it faster and quicker. Mm -hmm. But I would encourage people to send them to the lab centrally that do use ISPD endorsed practices for handling effluent. Outstanding. Okay, Sophie, you are on the clock. The number five draft choice. Nice. I don't I don't have the best track record for choosing the coolest ones. There's not a nutrition one here. You're okay. You're safe. There is a nutrition one. There is, there a, is nutrition a nutrition one. one. There there is. Is. Yeah. Right. And actually <laughs> that one I'm steering away from. However, I would love to discuss it more. <laughs> I don't want to select it. So mine is going to the secondary prevention. And I actually think that this one was also done in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. And this is um, to prevent fungal peritonitis. We recommend that antifungal prophylaxis be co-prescribed whenever PD patients receive an antibiotic course, regardless of the indication for that antibiotic course. Now, I will tell you, I am not currently at a PD center, but I can tell you that I was a very strong PD center. However, not all of my attendings were strong PD attendings. And I feel like I recall having this like run of people who ended up having candidal peritonitis post-treatment. And then at some point, Isaac was like, well, of course, we're supposed to be giving fluconazole, <laughs> you know, from a prophylaxis perspective. And to be honest, like, unless you had Isaac, and now Annie, who's on them, but she wasn't on when I was there, there was a lot that was unknown. And I was 2016 to 2018. So these recommendations were out then, but I don't think that this is well known still. So that's why I'm bringing this one up. Yeah, that was Nikhil, Nikhil put that up in an Ask Renal on he Twitter. Did, yeah. And, and and Jeff and I and a couple of others said yes, but the vast majority of the replies were, oh, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah I was like, surprised because this is yeah. something that we've done. I mean, and maybe it's because, you know, we learn all this from Raj, who's who's one of the, one authors, of the authors of this, yeah. but this is standard in our epic, you know, order set. It's automatic, you know, Nystatin comes up automatically yeah. whenever you try to order antibiotics for a, a so, PD patient. So, I mean, the whole idea here is that put somebody on antibiotics and we've there's certainly been this entity of antibiotic associated fungal peritonitis that's out there that a, a course of antibiotics wipe out the bowel flora it's like independence day in the bowel right and then all of a sudden there's overgrowth of yeast um, in the bowel right because the, the yeast take over they're like you know alien opportunists so the whole idea is if you give somebody nystatin when you're they're getting an antibiotic course do you prevent that fungal overgrowth that would come but, you know, fungal peritonitis is pretty rare. So to do a, you know, a proper randomized control trial would like be thousands of patients to show, you know, benefit to reduce fungal peritonitis. And some studies have shown a benefit. Nystatin, less side effects, easier to tolerate. Fluconazole, a little bit more interaction. So you got to gauge your peritonitis risk for fungal peritonitis to decide between the two. If you have a high baseline fungal peritonitis rate, you might want to go with fluconazole. If you're using much more broad spectrum antibiotics for a longer period of time, the risk of fungus goes up, you might want to go with fluconazole, but we've gotten away just fine by using nystatin. And you want to continue it for a week after antibiotics are stopped. And not just for PD peritonitis, our PD patients get antibiotics for pneumonia, they get nystatin for osteomyelitis, they get there's no reason why PD peritonitis antibiotics would be any different in terms of the risk of fungal infection. So if the evidence isn't great, fungal is the worst peritonitis to have high death rate, poor likelihood of return, 
really like the worst of the worst peritonitis. So yeah, the number needed to treat is high, but it's a pretty benign therapy to give somebody an Istatin. And that's how we've rationalized it. I, I think that's the point is even though it's rare, it's it's devastating for the yeah. patients. And yeah. so a little bit of Nystatin is, you know, much, much better than a fungal peritonitis. Yeah. One of my patients asked me to taste it once uh, because he said like, do you know what this tastes like? <laughs> so I will say it does not taste great. <laughs> Maybe a pill should come down the road. Okay. I thought that was good. And I, and Sophie, I think that's actually a great call because that, that is one of the guidelines that's going to be practice changing for me because I was not on team antifungals during peritonitis. And I read the section. I was like, Oh, I'm going to start doing this. I, I think you've improved your drafting skills. Woo. Yes. <laughs> Third time's a charm. <laughs> Jeff, you mentioned continuing it for a week after. Yeah. That's something that's I've heard before, but I noticed that's not in the guidelines. So is that, oh, does that vary yeah, across I, practices? I would say it does probably, but, and I don't know where the evidence for the week after comes from, but that was certainly the school of Oreopolis and Bargman. And um, makes sense to me that that's how long it takes the bowel to, to repopulate. And so uh, next time to go with, I'm going to go with the adjunctive treatments is the suggestion of using icodectran for volume overload during acute peritonitis. And this is, I love this one because this is like, this was like a modification of something that I was doing in a much more intelligent way is that when you get peritonitis, you get a lot more blood flow into the peritoneum and everybody turns into a, a, a rapid transporter, right? You're going to be moving a lot more fluid and you're going to have a lot, if you do long dwells, you're going to run into a lot more ultrafiltration failure. And one of my kind of standard moves with peritonitis is to shorten the treatments and do, and be really more focused on volume. But the guideline points out that if you do that, I think it was, you're going to get decreased immune function by doing these, these exchanges, or even if you use the high dextrose solutions uh, to compensate for this, and that there's a suggestion that maybe, and again, not really backed up by empiric data, but switching to icodextran to help with this ultrafiltration failure that you may run into with peritonitis was, I thought, clever, and I, I like this recommendation. Jay, do you what do you see this, and what do you do when you have run into uh, volume problems during peritonitis? So I think that's pretty much what you said. We tend to, you know, put them on the cycler at night. So the thing with my my patient population is the vast majority of my patients are on manual exchanges, really? which is a little different than kind yeah. of the standard in most other programs. But when they come into the hospital- Why is that? Just don't. out of curiosity. I'm in a safety net hospital system and a lot of our patients are unfunded. So it's a budgeting issue. We only have so much budget for a certain number of cyclers. So our patients have to demonstrate that they're high transporters and need a cycler before we get them that. And that that's changing a little bit because our program's been successful. So we're getting a little more support. But in the hospital, we don't have the nursing support to do manual exchanges. So people get put on the cycler in the hospital. But as to what Joel said, we usually put them on, you know, relatively short dwells, get them kind of cleared up a little bit. And then I tend to use an icodextrin day dwell or long dwell during the day to dose their antibiotics and to kind of help with some of that volume removal. Uh, Jeff, any any other thoughts on this like this adjunctive therapy? Yeah, so draft pick. Yeah, a couple besides of- that, it was just pure genius on my part. That I really, I, it was like drafting Brady at one ninety nine. Tell me, I'm tell me, I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I'm I'm going to caveat it and say people with peritonitis don't feel great. They don't eat and drink as much. So I wouldn't like blanket say 
have peritonitis, must increase glucose, must add. So it's all about like, are they showing signs of volume expansion? And certainly there's a role to add it if they are. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't want people to walk away and say, oh, I have to up their glucose. I have to give everybody with peritonitis icodextrin. It's only if they show signs that they're getting volume expanded. The other thing, Jay, that I thought was interesting is that a lot of our pharmacokinetic data for antibiotic dosing is from CAPD. And actually, that's a big problem with Cycler. We clear the antibiotics faster. So I actually think there may be an advantage with keeping patients on CAPD because you have a little bit more consistent pharmacokinetics from the studies that were done. Which I think is another reason for my patients to stay out of the hospital because they can stay on their manual exchanges. Something that is in this guideline that's not in the 2016 one is there's an entire table of stability of antibiotics in PD fluid. And that is great. I'm so glad that's in there. Yeah. And if I go to time and time again to these guidelines, even as somebody who who, who, it's for these kinds of those kinds of things that just you just wouldn't know without checking. Okay, Jade, we are starting up the second round. You get the first draft of the second round. You're on the clock. Okay. So I was going to pick the dosing of antibiotics. And uh, Jeff touched on this a little bit, but the guideline says we recommend that IP intraperitoneal antibiotics be preferred route of administration as long as there's compatibility, stability, and the patient doesn't have signs of systemic sepsis, which I think is great. I think getting patients IP antibiotics when you can is good for patients. And I think that's why the recommendation is here. But as Jeff said earlier, if they need antibiotics, they need it and you get them loaded up with IV and then switch to your IP later. And I think it's, you know, again, there's a large table here in the guidelines saying, you know, recommended dosing for intermittent dosing versus continuous dosing based on whether your patients are doing manual or long dwells versus kind of cycler dwells. I think there's just a lot of good information that's here. Some of it's same from 2016, but some of it's updated. So that was my pick. And, and like I said, a lot of my patients are on manual exchanges. And so we, we tend to use, when they do end up in the hospital, we tend to use that long day dwell for their antibiotic dosing. Can you guys talk to me about that? So we when we have patients, we have two options. One is we can add antibiotics to every bag or do it with the, the long dwell. And so what's is there efficacy differences between those two? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And um Uh, I would say that just for convenience, it's easier to have it in a six-hour dwell. That's called uh, intermittent dosing. In one and six hours is about the time that ninety percent of the antibiotics been absorbed. And then there's continuous dosing, meaning you put it in every exchange. Now, for a drug like Vanco, it doesn't matter because you give it, and then there's measurable levels. And so, I would say that you know some antibiotics are less, you know, they're less. We're less fussed around continuous versus intermittent. Some can only be given continuously, like ampicillin. There is no option from a pharmacokinetic point of view to give it in one exchange a day. Others, like cephalosporins, you could do either or. And I don't think the studies have really suggested that one is superior to the other. And I think, um, you know, giving them in one exchange a day, intermittent, has, you know, I think the evidence is okay that their outcomes are pretty similar with continuous. But we definitely need more studies in, in that area. And it still remains a little bit of an ambiguous area. But I'd say the vast majority of programs do them in one, in an intermittent exchange like Jade does in a six-hour dwell. These are the pages that I go to over and over again when I get a patient with peritonitis. I'm always downloading these guidelines, looking up this table. I find this to be just super helpful. Nyan, do you guys do it in every exchange? 
You have the option. And again, maybe this is influence from Raj, but we tend to put it in every every bag. Oh, okay. And then the only other thing I would say, Jade, that you, you raised an important point is that, you know, there's advantages to IP antibiotics. If people are nauseous, if people are throwing up, oral's not going to be absorbed very well. They're pretty well tolerated. You don't have to have a pick line and use any IV access to give patients antibiotic which might preserve future vascular access sites. So think about the IP route for other infections besides peritonitis. Like say you have somebody with osteomyelitis who's going to need a month of antibiotics. Why do they have to have a pick, muck up an IV site, get a risk of infection there, send them home on IP antibiotics? That's a really good point. You know, I'd never thought about that for other infections. We do that quite commonly. One thing I, I brought up during the NEFJC chat was having these antibiotics at home. How many programs have, you know, kind of an emergency kit where the patient has antibiotics that they can go ahead and put in IP at home. And I think that's a, something that I think Nikhil brought up because in his area, he's got patients that are thousands of miles from the clinic and they have that at home and that, that they can go ahead, collect their sample, put their antibiotics in, and hopefully not ever have to go to an emergency room. And, and we don't have that in, in our program. But again, Houston, we're very close to each other. <laughs> it's a very controversial issue. And it's a very variable practice. You hit on something that I've, I've been asked about a lot lately. Should patients at home, because of prompt delivery of antibiotics and some of the challenges we've already talked about earlier in presenting to the ER, have a kit to give themselves IP antibiotics or oral antibiotics. And I don't know how other people feel about it, but for me, we can get our patients antibiotics pretty quickly in our emergency department with a pretty good protocol and we can sample a fluid and people don't live too far away in my program. So we tend not to use it. But if you're rural and live in a far area, or if you are somebody who's going to have a, a long delay in getting antibiotics for whatever reason after hours, you might want to think about it for select people. IP's tough because then you've got to look at expiry. And to Nyan, to your point, if peritonitis rates are really low, you're going to, you're probably more likely to have more antibiotics expire and never be used and have to keep checking that and doing inventory on that than actually being a useful practice. So I'm kind of like, if you're going to do it, use oral because they're a little bit easier to get and probably think about it for select patients, not like a blanket. Everybody must have a kit, but I stand to be corrected with more studies. Outstanding. Outstanding. Okay, Jeff, you are on the clock. Second pick in the second round. Yeah, so I picked this one because it's the same recommendation, but then they're like, and here's a disclaimer. The recommendation, which I think is the same from before, was that we recommend that PD catheter be removed in refractory peritonitis episodes, defined as failure of the effluent to clear after five days of appropriate antibiotics. And the caveat now, uh, we suggest that observation for antibiotic effect longer than five days is appropriate if the effluent cell count is decreasing towards normal. The idea here is, like my colleagues in Hong Kong in 2016 were sometimes waiting up to 10 days before pulling the catheter. And we were like, if it's five days, must remove catheter. And anybody who ever gets an ID consult for a patient admitted with peritonitis, it's remove catheter, remove catheter, doesn't matter, remove catheter. What they know is it's a foreign body, it's infected, remove catheter. But, and that's a challenge, I think, sometimes in getting advice from ID in PD, because we need somebody who has kind of dual expertise. And I certainly have my go-to people at my institution who sort of get PD and understand it. So I think now, like at day five, if the cell count was still high, you know, people would knee-jerk remove the catheter. But it's all about the trajectory. Like, am I 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000? Yeah, remove the catheter. But 10,000, 5,000, 3,000, 2,000, 400. 
yeah, like we're getting there. Like, so, you know, there's nothing, nobody said on day five, something's going to magically happen or not. So I think the idea here that if the cell count's going in the right direction, you can have a sort of five to 10 day buffer. The only thing I did push back on on the guidelines and it didn't make it in, and this was my strong suggestion, is they say failure of the effluent to clear. So to me, that's like a cell count definition, right? If the cell count's not normal. But another like sort of refractory situation is if you're still growing the bug, but the cell counts normalizing, like that's also a bad news story. So I, my definition of refractory is the effluent's clear and the bug's not growing anymore. That to me is like really like, okay, we're winning this one. So just want to caveat that kind of guideline with that additional. But so, th- so that suggests you're repeating a culture at yeah, like to me, five days. Yeah, to me, there's no reason not to do a cell count in a culture always. Like give me a scenario where a cell count's useful, but not a culture. They go hand in hand to sort of guide you in management. Nice. Excellent. Swap, you're on the clock. Yeah, so I'm, I'm again choosing sort of uh, guidelines that are overlooked and, uh, and people might miss them. So the one that I like is on giving antibiotics before invasive gynecological and gastrointestinal procedures. I thought that was very interesting. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're talking about giving antibiotics before any invasive gynecological or, you know, like colonoscopy, hysteroscopy, that sort of stuff. Uh, and the evidence is kind of mixed, right? It's all observational, mostly. There's one weenie trial, which didn't show much, a small, uh, you know, 90 patient trial. But otherwise, there's a lot of observational data that after procedures, you have peritonitis. So why not, you know, prevent it? And it's often gram-negative peritonitis, which are, you know, notorious, hard, difficult to treat, may end up with treatment failure and all that. Uh, so why not prevent them by giving some antibiotics? A and B is that you leave them dry before doing those procedures. That's the other one that I'm not sure we are doing all that. This stuck in my mind because we had a patient with a buried PD catheter who had a hysteroscopy and ended up with some kind of, you know, abdominal pain. And we were struggling to make the diagnosis because the PD catheter was buried. Uh, so we didn't ha- even have, you know, cloudy effluent. Um, so so these things can be tricky. Um, and, and I think this is another opportunity to, you know, reduce your peritonitis rates. Uh, many of our patients will be having these procedures. So why not accept? What I think is interesting is that colonoscopy, I think this is also in the 2016 recommendations, but colonoscopy was you know, seems very straightforward. Like that is something that people think about. But I think from a gynecologic perspective, it's much lower on what people are considering. You know, hysteroscopy, yes. And most of the procedures, I think it was hysteroscopy with like biopsy or palpectomy. But the other one there, which is incredibly common for women is IUD insertion. That is not anything I would ever think, of course, not a PD patient, but nothing that wouldn't even cross my mind because it's such a common procedure. And I guarantee you that OB-GYN docs are not considering that either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think it's hard to say that that really fits in the same definition of invasive gynecological procedure as, like you said, an endometrial biopsy or things like or endometrectomy or something like that. Right. But if you look at the studies, the patients who had procedures, IUD insertion was was one of them included mm-hmm. that yeah. had the complication. It, it was. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and you bring up a really good point. One that like, again, back to what Joel said, we have the guideline, but how are we going to make sure that it's being adhered to? Like gynecologists are not going to read ISPD guidelines mm-hmm. and nephrologists may not know when our patients are seeing gynecologists and having these procedures done. So this is a really, really tough one, and I could imagine it would fall through the cracks for so many patients. And it really, I think it does fall into the patient to let the clinic know whenever they're having a procedure or anything done. And a credit to our amazing home dialysis nurses who know absolutely everything about the patient. They really are the gatekeepers to like really let us know when these things are happening. And I think in, it's a really tough one. 
I think that's a really good point. And I think that goes back some into the training. I know our nurses tell patients and as part of their training, if you're ever going to have a procedure, if you're ever going to have a surgery, like you said, call us and tell us. And the nurse usually has that first point of contact. And it's very nice when they're in the know and we can kind yeah. of intervene yeah. ahead of time, or at least tell the patient here, we're going to give you some antibiotics. Please go to your procedure dry, drain everything out. It's, yeah. it's really important. And then obviously, if you're referring a patient to one of these specialists and a procedure might be in the works, include that in the referral you know, package that you know, this is a PD patient who's going to need antibiotics. And we have a couple of sheets that go along with the referrals to like GI because we do, a, for better or worse, a lot of screening colonoscopies before transplant um, as part of a transplant evaluation. And for worse. For worse, right. <laughs> I think that was a separate conversation. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's another podcast. <laughs> And that's the thing, right? Like we bombard the patients with so much information while you're training them, right? Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. I can just imagine that this is something that will slip through the cracks. And that's why uh, I often tell, you know, and our nurses are really on top of these things is that sometimes patient will call you for trivial things. You know, I'm doing this. Is it okay? Someone gave me a prescription for this drug. Is it okay? And I'm like, that's fine. You know, it's okay. Get all this information. Sometimes, you know, you will have some information that will be actionable. So it's okay if you are like the nanny or the mother of all these patients. It's totally fine that you get called about every tiny thing that is happening. Well, and the funny one is, is that the things that people really think about are like dental procedures. We're always talking about antibiotics and dental procedures. No concern there, right? Yeah. And I actually, interestingly, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they took dental prophylaxis out of 2000. It's not in these guidelines. But they were in 2016 as a suggestion. Really? And we still do it in our program for patients going for dental oh. work. Okay. But again, that's a really low grade evidence uh, base. So maybe they maybe they they didn't think it was worth it including in this. But that's that's I not I look there. forward to the 2027 version where they remove this about gynecological procedures. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, actually, that Saudi Arabian study was actually right. That doesn't yeah. do anything. And, and, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Guess, Hopefully, there'll be better data. And gastroscopy is now the latest thing. Like, should we yeah, extend that's on that, that list, to OGD? Yeah. And there's a couple of papers in PDI that were just published. One paper that was just published with the guideline issue, looking at prophylaxis for gastroscopy, showing some benefit. We don't prophylax for patients going for OGD, but uh, I know that a lot of centers do. Okay, Nyan, you're on the clock. Yeah, so I'm going to take a flyer here. This is, you know, you always hope that this turns into like a Richard Sherman at pick 154 or whatever he was. So I'm going to go with the last episode we did was the salt substitute trial. So to piggyback on that, I'm going to go with avoidance of hypokalemia. That's which is the one I wanted to get. <laughs> that was a good one. Yes. I, I, this was totally bizarre to me. I was like, what? Well, you know, it, it's funny. I remember I was reading this and I wrote a textbook chapter that included hypokalemia. And I remember doing the research and putting in like, oh, it's associated with ileus and all this stuff. But I never put the two and two together that, you know, that could be associated with peritonitis because of more um, gram negative bacterial, you know, translocation. It seems like the evidence is not great for this. And it kind of parallels hypoalbuminemia and malnutrition and, and other issues. But uh, something that's interesting and it's fairly common, I think, in, in people patients to have low potassium levels. I mean, do you think they could add in there also avoidance of malnutrition? Because <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's such a vague recommendation. And really, there is so much overlap from that perspective. It's a really interesting one. The idea here is that low potassium somehow causes, as you said, impaired gut motility that leads to intestinal bacterial overgrowth and somehow leads to an increased risk of enteric bowel bug related peritonitis. 
So there was a few papers from Asia that found that hypokalemic patients had a different bowel flora and had markers of intestinal overgrowth and that were at higher risk for, for bowel bug peritonitis. We looked at this issue in our very large cohort of in patients in the PDOP study across, I think, five countries, and we couldn't see a relationship with hypokalemia and bowel bug peritonitis. We did see a relationship with overall risk of peritonitis, but it, it adjusted down the more comorbidity and nutritional factors we added to those models. So I think it's really just a marker of a more multi-morbid, poor nutrition patient who would have a higher risk of any complications. Now, that's sort of like an apple pie kind of motherhood recommendation, like treat low potassium because low potassium is associated with a peritonitis risk. I'm not sure that it's causative, to be honest. I'm not sure. And so there is something interesting that will be coming out in the next uh, month or two, actually looking at an intervention with potassium management and risk of peritonitis. That might change my perspective, you know, when it's published. We'll hear what people think about that. But to me, I mean, independent of this recommendation, if someone's K was low, would you not address it in your PD cohort, either with supplementation or diet? I think they're just saying be a little bit more cognizant that there may be some other risks, but it's an association. I had very good pick, strong work. Sophia, you are on the clock. All right. I feel like our pickings are getting a little bit slimmer. So I'm going to go for tried and true. Um, I'm going to take basically duration of treatment for staph aureus and for coag-negative staph peritonitis and strep peritonitis and coronabacterium peritonitis and for pseudomonas peritonitis, mainly because, dang it, that is something that we all should be looking at and we should be thinking about and duration of antibiotics should be monitored and chosen wisely for our populations. It's interesting in, in um, some of my colleagues are doing trials in the ICU trying to shorten antibiotic courses. And I wonder if this might be even overkill for, for peritonitis. Like, could we get away with shorter courses of antibiotics? And not sure where the evidence base came for a lot of the durations that are here. Having said that, my colleague CC Zeto just finished a study where they looked at whether extending antibiotics for a week in, impacted the risk of adverse outcomes after peritonitis treatment and didn't find, find a benefit to extending antibiotics beyond a week. So I think studies that shorten antibiotic therapy might be really welcome here. That seems like that's a trend in infectious disease, right? Yeah. Is shortening antibiotics for everything. I mean, everything we're doing from, shorter antibiotics. Moving from IV to oral yeah. is the other trend, right? We're, Right, the right. But remember, of this therapy just doesn't need to be as much as we thought. Right, but remember, we don't remove the source, right? We we keep the PD catheter in. That's the other slight difference. Yeah, true. So I'm I'm curious for the people that take care of more PD patients. I don't know if anyone's going to pick this, but what strikes me is with the empiric antibiotics, it suggests that we need to be covering pseudomonas empirically. We don't get pseudomonas peritonitis at our center. Is it because it is more common than maybe what we're seeing? Is it because it's a more devastating infection? Why do we need to empirically cover pseudomonas? You raised a really important point that it's always important to locally audit the microbiology of peritonitis in your program. But, you know, pseudomonas is up there uh, in my program. It is a pretty bad one to have, very often associated with an exit site for catheter infection. Really, really bad one, hard to treat, high, high risk of uh, catheter needing to come out. So it's a bad one, and it's pretty common in the microbiology. It's interesting that you don't see it. That might be a bit of an anomaly compared to other programs. But I would still suggest that people cover for it. Okay, the last pick of the second round and the last pick of the draft. I'm going to go to uh, contamination of peritoneal dialysis systems 
And the suggestion that you immediately initiate therapy if it's a wet contamination. Do I have that correct? That's yeah. the, uh, that's the recommendation. That's a good one. Yeah. It's just, you know, because patients, they're like, oh my God, I touched something I wasn't supposed to touch, or I saw a break where I shouldn't see a break. And we're like, we take this seriously. We're going to start treating immediately. And this comes back to the idea of the best way to treat peritonitis is to prevent peritonitis. Let's get on this right away. And I think in the discussion, it's not part of the guideline, but in the discussion, they're like, you got a touch contamination, or if you get a bug that is consistent with a touch contamination, retraining also. Yeah, no, that's a really good one. So just for people who don't do PD very frequently, a wet contamination is there should never be any outside contact of PD fluid. It's a closed system, right? From from the fresh bag to the patient to the drain bag. Any fluid that's out there while the patient is connected or disconnects is a wet contamination. So what the ISPD guidelines say is like, come to the unit, inspect everything, get antibiotics. But guess what? You do that once for a patient who's at work, who has an accidental wet contamination. They'll never tell you again that they've had a wet contamination because it's like, oh, Pearl's going to schlep me into the clinic and I got to get out and it's my day. And so um, I've realized now that a better strategy is just to tell patients to call and get them to get their antibiotics wherever they are and just start the, start the antibiotics over the phone. Like I always worry that for every one wet contamination we hear about, there's probably 10 that people are like, oh, I'm not going to tell the unit because it's just going to be... It's just going to be so annoying how I'm going to have to deal with it. And they're embarrassed, right? Right. So we're just like, don't worry about it. We'll get you oral antibiotics. We'll solve this. Like, it's not going to be a big deal to increase the yield that people come forward and just tell us that they're having it. The only caveat I'd say is a lot of the times, like there's a micro crack in the transfer set, or you really need to inspect and see where this wet contamination happened from. So patients who tell me I screwed up, it was open, I shouldn't have done that, like, yeah, give them the antibiotics. If someone's like, I felt wetness and I don't know where it's coming from, well, that's a different story. There could be, like, we don't, we have to make sure that we've identified where the breach is. It may not just be a technique issue. Jade, any thoughts there? Yeah, I was going to say the same. We do the same. If patients call us with a, a contamination, we give them oral antibiotics and we try very hard to say, you know what, this is okay. It happens. And sometimes, you know, we do if if with certain patients, we bring them in and, and talk about it and inspect their technique. But exactly to what Jeff said, if it's something different, if it's something we don't know, you know, it's one thing if you touch the catheter and or you drop the catheter in and, and you know what happened. But if you're doing your exchange and you see you know, oh, there's some drops of water or drops of fluid on the floor, or my shirt is wet, and I don't know where this liquid is coming from, then we really start to inspect, you know, the exit site, the transfer set, check their bags at home, make sure they don't have an expired bag or a leaky bag or something has punctured their box and those kind of things. Excellent. Okay. I'm the call that's the end of the draft. Uh, I won again. Thank you for playing. <laughs> no, nobody chose the only 1A recommendation on the entire guideline. Right. right. That's, that's sort of the boring one, right? It's like, hey, give antibiotics. And, and it's but that's like the offensive lineman. You need, you know, you need boring in a draft. But we alluded to it throughout. Hey, I have it's, a it's a, it's a higher grade than RAS inhibitors for diabetic kidney disease. <laughs> how much how much you guys put on this avoidance of H2 blockers preference for PPIs? Uh, I mean, really, like the mechanism seems a little skeptical. I mean, it sounds like the data could be a little bit questionable, but has multiple sources supporting it. Like, what what's this all about? And why would a PPI be less of an issue? I have the same question as you. The evidence is pretty poor. Having said that, you know, um, one of my colleagues who's a pharmacist is all about medication deprescribing in patients on dialysis. And guess what? 
like a patient just complains of any GI symptoms, gets a PPI, gets an H2 blocker. So I more look that as, do they really need to be on this? Like, is it really doing anything for them? Just one other pill to stop. And maybe there's a benefit for peritonitis, but I'd be less worried about peritonitis risk, to be honest. Especially when the PPI gives you low mag and then you have low potassium and then you get peritonitis. Right. And there's obviously confounding by indication. Is it the drug or the reason why the patients were on the drug in the first place too? In the 2016 guidelines for the Staph aureus recommendations, there was a note in there about testing the carrier status. So doing the nasal swab, testing the carrier status for MRSA. And I I noticed that was absent in this guideline. And I didn't know we don't routinely check the, you know, Staph aureus carrier status in our patients. Is that something that's done in in other programs? Uh, Swap, do you guys check the Staph aureus carriers? status? I, again, I don't know what we are doing right now, but until at least a couple of years ago, when I last did some PD, we were and we were treating it. But I, I honestly, it was sort yeah. of like, let's do this. I'm not sure it works. Yeah. And so you do the decontamination process if they're positive? Yeah. My patients never said, sure, stick something up my nose five days a month, you know, to eradicate Staph aureus. And we know that carriage is transient and can come back and may not be effective. And in the era of putting exit site ointment or cream, it's not quite clear if there's an additive role to eradicate Staph aureus in the nares. So it's something that needs to be studied, like if it, is there's an additive role with exit site ointment. But a lot of that data about eradication and benefit was before we were routinely prophylactically giving antibiotic ointment at the exit site. And in a modern day where we're doing that, I'm not sure what the additive benefit of Staph aureus eradication is. And that's, again, another research question that remains to be answered. That's good to know. And that's, I guess, why it's now missing from the guideline. Right. Okay, excellent. Um, What we have now, besides an annoying dog, (laughs) is we're ready to do uh, uh, tubular secretion. So this is an opportunity for everybody to promote anything that they've been uh, seeing, watching, participating, things pretty cool. As tradition goes, we start with Swap because he always is ready. Swap, what do you got for your tubular secretion? I have a seven-year-old and last year we, uh, just because of the pandemic and nothing else was going on, we put him in the spelling bee and and he won the local, the regional. That's very Indian of you. Uh, Exactly. So I know I'm fitting the stereotype totally. And he went to the national. He didn't make it. He made a few rounds and this year he took part again. And lo and behold, he's the regional champion again. He spelled tinge, shoal, quill, megaton, among many other words. So he's going to the national level. I haven't seen I haven't seen that movie. I think there is a series, right? There's a TV series or a movie on Netflix on Spelling Bee. I should go and watch it. So I'm now we are becoming one of those families where, you know, it's spellings and uh, fitting the total stereotype of uh, a Spelling Bee family. It's fine. Thank you for carrying on the tradition. <laughs> is it all is it all Indian families when you go to these meets? All Indians. Yes. Uh, a high proportion of Indians. High proportion exactly. It's mixed but uh, yeah, the finals were mostly brown skinned people. Okay. The first book we learned to read is the dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, Sophia, what's your uh, tubular secretion? So um, I'm going to do a little bit of a humble brag. I just found out uh, one or two weeks ago that I won an, an award, a monetary award. I applied for the, this is an inter- or within the institution, a program for academic clinical clinician educators. And it's for um, this free and open access educational tool that I'm trying to create that's interactive and it's a kidney physiology tutorial for medical students, residents, and nephrocurious individuals, so non-nephrologists. And the award is to integrate it into our medical school, uh, medical student program, but it's 
going to hopefully be built for everybody. Um, I did win this um, for something in, with ASN uh, in 2021 for this, but you know, now I actually have funding. Contest, right? You have the yeah. education contest, right? Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. So, That's awesome. Thank you. So now I have funding for it. Whether or not it's going to cut, cut down on my weekends, as we all know, is uh, remains up in the air. <laughs> but I'm excited. So, And if anybody's interested, it's still a really rough pilot. Uh, and it needs to be viewed on Google Chrome desktop right now because I had a, an undergrad student help make it for me. Uh, but it's at abckidney.com. So check it out. abckidney.com. Yep. Hard That's to forget. That's a good name. That's a good name. That's a good name. Excellent. Jade, what do you got? So I forgot that we were going to have to do this, but you know, I just want to give a shout out to our dialysis nurses, especially the peritoneal dialysis nurses. Like I said, it was a struggle starting our program and getting nurses who wanted to be there and, and really, they just really have such an impact on patient care for both hemodialysis, but especially for peritoneal dialysis. So just to say thank you. And we appreciate all the peritoneal dialysis nurses out there. Excellent. Jeff, you got, you got a tubular secretion? I, I'll secrete. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> that's the proper sound. verb. That's the proper verb. I know it sounds disgusting, but uh, that's what we're encouraging. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't be disgusting. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just want to say it was really great to be here. And I, and I think that, you know, one of, the, one of the underlying themes is that maybe fellows need more exposure to home dialysis. And if you're from a program that doesn't see many home patients or PD patients, I want you to know that we're working really hard um, at ASN and through other areas to try and make sure that we beef up resources um, for people to have some different avenues. So um, just stay tuned for some opportunities if you're in a nephrology fellowship program and want to get some extra exposure to home dialysis. Feel free to reach out to me if you're uh, interested in finding out more. Also, Home Dialysis University, they pay for you to go places. Absolutely, and yeah. And that's and a and that's awesome. Yeah, and I'm a faculty of HDU and you will hear some amazing lectures and you spend a weekend um, with some of the best and brightest in home. So again, that's a great uh, that's a great point, Sophie, to put a plug in for HDU. Very cool. Uh, last month, I did a hiking trip in the Grand Canyon. So a lot of people have heard about this. It's, it is not the largest hole in the world, but it's the second largest hole in the world. And it absolutely lives up to its reputation. It is fantastic. Did you get Did you get all the way gorgeous. down there? Like, did you have? Yeah, we started at the rim. We did not do the classic rim to rim. We were about uh, ten or fifteen miles up river uh, at a place called uh, uh, the Grand Grand View Overlook, and it lo- overlooks a, a big mesa called the Horseshoe Mesa. It was spectacular. And, uh, you know, it's about a mile from the top to the, to the river. It took us a couple of days to get all the way down. And then we took three days to get all the way up. It was a phenomenal, it was a really, really incredible trip. Um, so, uh, my tubular secretion is the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Check it out. That's cool. We rafted down the Grand Canyon once. That was Colorado. bananas. And how long did you, di- how long was your trip? That could be a, a lot. That- it was a week. It was, it was adventures and comfort, but like pseudo comfort, but it was pretty fun. I'm waiting for my kids. Yeah, we camped at the we camped at the Grand Canyon, and it's it's awesome. It totally lives up to, to everything. Yeah, it is just it is scale. It's definitely on my list. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Now the key here is not to close this window. Okay, until you see in the top corner, it'll say. Um,